Tuesday night, especially for those of you who are live streaming, there will be no uh, Bible class next Tuesday night because we will be at the pre-trib rapture study group. So remember to mark that on your calendars and get an alert and all of those things. Otherwise, you'll be showing up here and you'll think the rapture occurred. Also, um, I guess that's pretty much it. We have communion uh, twice in We'll have communion that Sunday, and we'll also have it on on uh, Christmas Day. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades... But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get into the word this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Just to give everybody the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have tonight to come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to be reminded of your goodness, your faithfulness, to reflect upon the realities of life and dealing with people that are hostile to us, and also what it means to be faithful as friends. Father, we pray that as we study this, we may come to look at our own lives in light of your word, in light of understanding how to face these kind of challenges that we can exhibit your grace and your love and your character uh, even to those who are at enmity with us. And Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with your word. And we pray also for those who are traveling. Alan, Tutzer on the road, uh, watch over them. We're also thankful for Jim Myers and the fact they got their visa taken care of and they're back home safe. And uh, we're just uh, thankful for the many ways in which you provide for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in an interesting chapter. There's a few chapters in the scripture that when you come to them, you think, now how am I going to teach this? Because there doesn't seem to be just a whole lot of theology or uh, special revelation of a new type or something dramatic that's going on in the chapter. And this is one of those chapters. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. And this is really an, a great example. It's part of narrative. And sometimes when you go through narrative literature, you just have one of two things. You have a long section that's just telling what happened in terms of the events. And in other cases like this, you have a little bit of narrative, but this chapter is mostly conversation. You have conversation where David and Jonathan are going back and forth, and Jonathan has a number of verses uh, in terms of what he says. This is the most um, that Jonathan speaks in the entire narrative of First, First Samuel. And so it gives us some insight into him as a person and his character. So we have this interchange between David and, and uh, Jonathan as they're trying to solve a problem. And that problem is Saul's desire to kill David. So it is a people problem, and that's important when we go through Scripture to think in terms of these broad categories 
that, especially in narrative literature, these broad categories that we have studied, whenever we're talking about narrative, we're usually talking about a story, we're talking about people, and the interactions with people, and whenever you have interactions with people, you're going to have problems. And there are different kinds of problems that people have. Sometimes they're problems with their own sin nature. Sometimes they're problems with other people's sin natures. Sometimes they're problems with their relationship with God. Sometimes they're problems just because we're living in the devil's world. And so we deal with those, and that's the essence of the conflict that is in any good story. And the resolution of these conflicts help us to understand how to apply the Word of God. And so when we look at this chapter, uh, we think in terms of the fact that this is provided for us, revealed to us by the Lord for a reason. And so it's always important when you're reading through the Scripture to understand the text in terms of what is happening, in terms of the literal historical event but also in terms of why does the Holy Spirit reveal this to us? Why is it important for us to know? And on one level, we need to know this because we need to understand who David is and the circumstances and situation that gave rise ultimately to his coming to the throne. But then when we get into the New Testament, we're told there's a broader reason. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul says, referring to these events in the Old Testament, that all these things happened to them, referring to Old Testament people, uh, all these things happened to them as examples. So God sovereignly chose these situations to tell us so that we could then fit them within the categories of, of doctrine that we come to understand in, in the Scripture. So these are examples, and they're, they're written for our admonition. They're written to, so that we can go and we can learn from them and not duplicate those errors and learn po the positively from the positive examples that are there. So it's written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, when we get into this particular section, uh, it's really focusing on people testing. And there's three main people in this narrative. On the one hand, you have David, who is the focal point in this section of Samuel. And David is faced with a test from two different people. The first test is from Saul. And that's the obvious one, and that's a negative example because this is a person who is hostile to David. And we often encounter people in our lives that are hostile to us to one degree or another. Maybe it's just somebody we don't quite get along with at work. Maybe it's a kid that we don't get along with. Maybe it's a parent we don't get along with. Maybe it's uh, somebody else in the family that, that it's okay. It's not anything big on a scale of 1 to 10. It's a 1 or a 2. But sometimes it's, it's, it's much worse. Sometimes uh, it's people at work, some people, people we work with that are competitive and have taken, for some reason, they're hostile to us. Maybe they're uh, other, other people in our life that we run into. So we have those that are uh, challenging us from a negative, uh, negative perspective. And so we have to maintain our own biblical mental attitude of grace orientation. We have to love our neighbors ourselves, so we have impersonal love or unconditional love that we have to apply. And so this is very important 
is because whenever we let somebody else's hostility or negativity toward us change anything that we do or say, or then, then we're letting them control us. We let too many times we let other people control our stability, our happiness, our joy, and even what we do or where we go. And we have to rise above all of that by having our focus on, on the scripture. And that's the problem that David has with Saul. And David is going to uh, go the extra mile with Saul. Now, Saul's an extreme case because Saul wants to kill David. Now, not too many of us have somebody out there who wants to kill us. Okay, so we, this is an extreme situation. But on the other hand, he also has a test, a, a people test, from Jonathan. Now, Jonathan is his best friend. They are extremely close. Uh, their souls are knit together, as uh, Jonathan comments, and we'll see this in uh, going back to 1 Samuel chapter uh, chapter 18, they've entered into a close covenant with one another. But the test here is a test of loyalty to that covenant, loyalty to one's friend in the midst of opposition, in the midst of hostility, especially in this kind of a situation when the person who's putting the pressure on the relationship is that person's father. And not only is it the typical blood relationship or family relationship, we've all heard the proverb that blood is thicker than water, so that it doesn't matter how close your friendship may be, uh, family relationships usually trump uh, friendships. But in this case, there's a lot more to it than that. On the one hand, you do have the typical family relationship, but that is exacerbated by the fact that we're talking about an inheritance where the father is the king, of the country, and the son, by all rights, should be the, the crown prince and should inherit the kingdom and inherit the reign and go on to reign. The competitor to the father's crown is his best friend, who is probably 15 to 20 years his junior. And so he is looking at David not only as uh, as a friend, but but the unique thing here is it's someone m much younger. And th I think that has always added a dimension to Jonathan's character because very few 38, 40-year-olds are going to express this kind of loyalty to a competitor who is 15 to 20 years his junior. So that shows a lot of humility on the part of, of Jonathan, as well as doctrinal orientation, because he understands that God has torn the kingdom from his father and given it to David, and he's not going to succumb to an arrogant, uh, competitive nature in his relationship with David. But this is nevertheless a test, because is Jonathan going to be loyal to the covenant with David, or is Jonathan going to be loyal to his father? So David is going to be tested both in terms of hostility from his relationship with Saul, who's attacking him, trying to take his life, but also in terms that this is putting pressure on this friendship. And is David uh, going to remain loyal to Jonathan? And is Jonathan going to remain loyal to David? So we have people testing uh, in two different ways in, in this situation. And this involves, uh, for Jonathan, it's going to involve uh, being loyal to David uh, no matter what is going on and what it might personally cost him uh, in the long run. Saul also has a people test that he's failing miserably. 
because God has appointed someone else to take his place, someone to replace him and to carry on the rulership of Israel. And so this is this has generated all sorts of jealousy and anger and bitterness on his part that then gets exacerbated by this demonic oppression that, that comes upon him. And we've seen up to this point that Saul has already attempted to take David's life on five different occasions. He is paranoid, he is arrogant, and this demonic oppression has uh, put all of that on steroids so that it is much worse than it normally would have been, which gives rise to these uh, uh, jealously motivated uh, attempts of murder. Uh, David would normally feel pretty isolated, but he has two close allies that come up from within Saul's family. So this is just the drama here. Uh, This is the kind of thing that they tried to make. I don't know if you remember this. They tried to make a um, sort of a soap operatic uh, miniseries out of this on television a few years ago, and it didn't quite quite work, but it has all of those elements of a, of a good drama and a good soap opera where uh, you have uh, David is married to uh, Michal, and yet it's her father that's trying to kill him and her brother who is saving him, and, uh, and, and so for a while he makes up with Saul, and he's back in the family, then Saul tries to pin him to the wall with his spear, and it goes on and on and on, so it has great, uh, great drama here, but God has brought alongside of David these two allies from within the royal family that he uses to uh, to protect him. And so what we see as we, um, as we get into this is uh, that God is using, I mean, that God is using David, uh, or Jonathan rather, as a source of counsel to David. David has the humility here to go to Jonathan to try to solve the problem. He's not going to do it on his own. And this is emphasized, this is part of wisdom, and David is considered one of the wisest uh, men. He's already been stated, I think, on three occasions in chapter 18 and 19 that David is full of wisdom. And uh, he handles himself wisely in, in Saul's court. And part of this is seeking wise counsel. Uh, this is important. Uh, scripture shows that seeking wise counsel is part of humility. It's part of wisdom. To seek counsel from another spiritual, spiritually mature believer. Uh, this does not always mean that their counsel will be best or right. But it is uh, emphasized in Scripture that this is important. Proverbs 11:14 says, "While there is no counsel, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety." And the word there is from the verb Yeshua. It means salvation or deliverance. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, in the sense of advisors, uh, they are established. That is, plans will stand firm. That's the word there in Hebrew. Proverbs 24.6 again says, uh, For by wise counsel you will wage your own war, but in a, and in a multitude of counselors there is deliverance. So it emphasizes having mature believers around who can you can go to in times of difficulty, who can give you solid uh, biblical 
advice. We're reminded of the situation with, with um, Jonathan back in 1 Samuel 18.1. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, uh, this was right after the battle with Goliath, uh, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Remember, you are to, under the law to love your neighbor as yourself. So this is exemplifying that Jonathan is uh, understands and exemplifies what that means to love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 3 we read, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And that's the background. Love operates within a covenant. If you're married, you have a love. You declared your love in a marriage service, and that love is uh, articulated within a covenant or a contract. That's the marriage license. And that you stand up before a pastor and or justice of the peace, and you recite certain vows that... Uh, that's the foundation of the, the covenant, so that when things are difficult, then you go back to what are the contractual obligations, and you work that out. That doesn't always sound too romantic when you're first getting married, but that's the foundation for longevity in marriage. Now, at the end of the previous chapter, we saw that David had fled north of Jerusalem to Ramah. Ramah was Samuel's hometown. It's about uh, eight or nine miles north of the old city of Jerusalem, or the Temple Mount. And he goes there to seek counsel from Samuel. Saul sent several uh, teams of men to capture David. Something very unusual happened there where they, the Holy Spirit interferes and they prophesy. Now what's interesting, and I pointed this out, is that that word for prophecy is one that we normally associate with giving divine revelation. But that that word is also used in numerous places to refer to musicians who prophesy with the harp and the lyre. And we have Miriam, the sister of Moses, who's a prophetess. And what happens right after she's called that is there is a the recording of her victory hymn as the Israelites came out of Egypt. We have uh, Deborah in uh, Judges chapter 5. Uh, four and five, but five is the song of Deborah, and she's called a prophetess. And so we have other examples of this, and it struck me as I was going back this morning and I started to review uh, the end of 19. David is there with Samuel at this place called uh, Navot. That's how it's uh, pronounced. It's spelled N-A-I-O-T-H, and it is, um, he will leave there, so it's mentioned again in 1 Samuel 20, verse 1, but it's pronounced in the Hebrew, Navot, which is a little easier than trying to uh, figure out how you pronounce a three-vowel diphthong there. Uh, but uh, the the um, this word, is, as I pointed out last, or when we studied that, is really refers to a place of a dwelling or a place of dwellings. It could be like a little suburb or a designated area. And it was probably where these prophets met, where Samuel had this school of the prophets. And they met there, and the Spirit of God came upon them. And what they did, the text says, was to prophesy. And that's when you read the, the, the chapter, it just seems, you know, it, it's difficult for us to explain what was going on. 
But another thing struck me is we think about David being there for several days, and the function that's going on here is that the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they're prophesying. And what did we spend the last three weeks doing? Studying a psalm that David very likely wrote at that time because it's reflecting upon uh, what had happened when Saul had sent his hit teams to surround him uh, at home and he escaped from there. And so after that, he wrote this psalm reflecting upon how he, his own innocence, that he had done nothing, there was no sin to be found in him, and yet he was being pursued by these enemies, and God was the one who would provide him uh, with victory. God was his strength, as the psalm uh, concludes. But he wrote that psalm at that time. So again, I think this fits the, the view that I hold that these, this word prophecy here isn't some sort of, of ecstatic sort of event which is typical of pagan religions, but that it is a function of God the Holy Spirit in terms of writing psalms and singing psalms and singing praise to God. So then we, David is there and he leaves Navot and he uh, heads... Uh, in search of Jonathan, who is probably at his father's place, which is in Gibeah, Gibeah of Saul, which is only about three miles away from Ramah. It's very, very close. But he's trying to figure out how to solve the problem that he is facing with, um, with Saul. And so, verse 1, we read, uh, David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan. Now, what I want you to note is on each of these slides, I have a title at the top telling you who is speaking. Because most of this chapter, we have 42 verses, I'm going to try to cover all of them tonight. Um, and just telling a story, so it's pretty quick, it'll be pretty quick going through it. But we have to follow who is speaking and the go, going back and forth in terms of this, this uh, dialogue. And so David comes to Jonathan and he's basically saying the same thing he said in Psalm 59. He says, what, what have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my iniquity? And that's what he was saying in, in Psalm 59. I have no iniquity. And he uses two of the words that he used in Psalm 59. He uses the word avon, which means iniquity, and he uses the word chatat, which means sin or a sin offering. And the basic meaning is to miss the mark. It's the primary word for sin. And he asked the question initially, he said, what have I done? Why am I being persecuted by this? And that's often a question that we ask, and we have to be careful not to fall into self-absorption when we are the perceived or real victim of somebody's uh, hostility to us or somebody's rejection. So maybe David's a little absorbed at this, self-absorbed at this point, but he doesn't, uh, he doesn't dive into it. He doesn't throw himself a little pity party here. He just raises this question and he says, what is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And so, um, without going into a lot of the detail, one of the things that's interesting about this is that's brought out by some Hebrew scholars is that this is almost stated in the Hebrew in the form of taking some sort of an oath. He is swearing uh, that he is sinless, that he is guiltless in this, that he is not, not his fault. So Jonathan replies to him and says, by no means. 
And he uses a, a phrase, I think the old King James said, may it never be. It's comparable to the same kind of line that Paul used a couple of times. It's a very strong uh, term. It appears 11 times in Samuel. And it has the idea, don't even think that way. Don't even think about this. And that tells us right away that if we start down the path of self-absorption, asking this question, what have I done? And taking the guilt on ourselves which some people just love to do, that we're going down the wrong way. And Jonathan, from a doctrinal perspective, says, quit thinking that way. That's part of basic mental attitude dynamics, disciplining our thinking so that we don't go down the wrong paths in our own thought life. So um, Jonathan says to him, by no means, don't even think that way, you shall not die. Don't think about giving up. Don't think. And David's going to, in fact, go that far in just a minute. He says, don't even think about that. He says, and then Jonathan reveals his own lack of information. He says, indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. He thinks that Saul's going to be uh, uh, confide totally uh, with him, which is not true. Uh, this has happened without Saul informing Jonathan of what was going on. So Jonathan thinks... Uh, has a certain naive view here and says that my father wouldn't do anything without first advising me. So why, and then he asks a rhetorical question, why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. So he's in a level uh, of denial partially because of his own, his own lack of, of um, his own lack of information. So now David has to respond to him and clear things up. So David, we're told in verse 3, David takes an oath again. Now that's a little problem exegetically because we don't have a statement that he had already taken an oath. But according to these Hebrew scholars, the format, the structure of verse 1 is in the structure of an oath where David is, through asking questions, is stating his own innocence through those rhetorical questions. That would be an, a form of a vow or an oath where he's affirming his own innocence. And so that's where we get the first kind of an oath. Now he swears again and he says, your father... He, this is an additional oath. He says, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. I found grace in your eyes, that we are friends. And he, meaning Saul, has said, don't let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. See, Saul's crafty. And he's saying, I'm not going to tell Jonathan what my plans are, because if he knew I was going to be, I was going to try to kill David, then he would be grieved, he would be upset. So Saul is, David is saying, Saul would not tell you about this. He would reason it through, and he would keep it a secret. But then David goes on to say, but truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives. This is another typical phrase in, uh, uh, in an oath that um, you're swearing on the Lord as he is alive and as you are alive. There's but one step between me and death. So David is making a very strong statement here that Saul wants to take his life. So then Jonathan responds in verse 4 and says, Well, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So it's a clear statement that he is affirming their closeness. He's reaffirming that this covenant relationship and the trust that they should have in one another. And that, David, that that's Jonathan is going to be true to that covenant. He's going to be true to David. Uh, if his father is indeed seeking David's life, 
Jonathan is going to stick with righteousness and he's going to do the right thing and be with David as opposed to following his father's wishes. So David then, in the next section from verses 5 to 11, they're going to come up with a plan, a test case, a scenario whereby they can determine, without putting David's life at risk, they're going to determine whether Saul is really attempting to kill David or not. And so he comes up with a new plan. And this would be the day that they're meeting, that daytime would be the last day in the month. So this is the, they had 30 day months. They were on a lunar calendar. So this is the last day in the month. And uh, that night they would have the new moon. And remember, according to the Jewish calendar, the, the day begins at sunset. So when David says tomorrow is the new moon, you think, well, today's Tuesday. If it was Tuesday afternoon and you're thinking tomorrow, you'd be thinking Wednesday night. But if you're on a Jewish calendar and it's Tuesday afternoon, tomorrow starts at sunset. So in our calendar, we would be saying, tonight's the new moon. So this is important because this is a three-day event. But the first day really starts that evening after after sunset. So David says, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. There would be a celebration every month. There was a celebration. We'll look at scripture on that in just a second. And they would come together, and they would have a, a banquet, and they would celebrate, and David should be there. Jonathan should be there. Uh, But David says to Jonathan, let me go, that I can hide in the field until the third day at evening. So if it's Tuesday, Tuesday night's the first day. Wednesday night's second day. Third day is going to be after after Thursday night. So David wants to hide, uh, which is good because it's going to put him in safety. And he's going to let Jonathan handle the the difficult thing of, of, of Saul's attempt to kill David. And it's often wise that when we have a problem is to let somebody else handle the problem. I tell this to uh, young pastors. I say, you have a problem with somebody in your church, your deacons, let your deacons handle it. Don't you handle it. Because you, you don't need to ever be perceived as the bad guy. Let your deacons handle the difficult situations. It's important if you're if you're an employer, you know, depending on the, the how things are set up, let have somebody who's like the sergeant at arms and the military uh, company commander let the first sergeant handle the problems. You you you. you exercise some wisdom there. So that's what David's doing, is he's going to put himself in a position where he's completely out of the situation and let Jonathan handle it. He's going to go hide in the field. And then he tells uh, Jonathan, if your father misses me and he asks where I am, this is what you say. David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. Now, some people say, well, that's lying. In the scripture, we have a pattern of telling a deception in order to protect lives. Where would we go to prove that? Exodus chapter 1, where the, the midwives uh, lied to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, you're supposed to let me find out when any male child is born and kill it. And they came back and they said, you know, we just couldn't get there in time when those boys were born. They were so fast and so strong. They came so quickly. We never got there in time, so we didn't have time to kill them. 
And again, in, in Joshua, with Rahab, and she's hiding the two Jewish spies uh, up on the roof, and the uh, police are coming, searching for them, and they say, well, where are they? And she said, they left, and they went by that road. And so she hides them to protect their lives. So there's a precedent in Scripture that it is more ethical to protect life than to um, tell the truth. So this, they're setting this up because the life that they're protecting is David's. Now, when we talk about the new moon, we have a couple of passages that talk about this in Numbers 10.10 and Numbers 28.11, that at the beginning of the month, there would be a feast and there would be a celebration. They would, uh, verse 10 says, You shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Same basic thing is stated in Numbers 28.11. It describes the burnt offerings a, a little more. So that's the, the situation. And David goes on um, as he describes this and uh, sets everything up and then in verse 7 we read if he says that so here's the scenario if he misses me you say I went home to Bethlehem because we have a family sacrifice now the test is how he's going to react if he reacts and says oh isn't that wonderful that's great then we know he's not trying to seek my life but if he gets angry if he throws a temper tantrum uh, then we know that he is really out to get my life. So that's what he describes in, in verse 7 and verse 8. Um, and, but in verse 8, he puts it this way. He says, Therefore, therefore to Jonathan, you shall deal kindly with your servant. That is, if uh, uh, the last thing he states up here in verse 7 is he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, that is, if evil is determined by him, you, Jonathan, shall deal kindly with your servant, you will deal well with me. You will deal on the basis of faithful, loyal love. The word there for translated kindly is chesed. Chesed is used to describe faithful, loyal love. Someone who is loyal to a covenant. It is primarily and almost exclusively, with just a few exceptions, used to describe God's loyalty to his covenant. So it is often translated as God's faithful uh, loving kindness, his faithful, loyal love, something like that. So David says to Jonathan, You shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant with the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me... Now this is where David once again comes back and says, Well, maybe it's just all my fault. Maybe it's all about me, and maybe I just did something, and, and Saul's not at fault at all. Maybe it's just me. And he says, um, Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me... That's the word avon, which we've seen already. Kill me yourself. You go ahead and kill me. He asked, he's asking Jonathan to kill him. For why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan refuses to do this and says, Far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, wouldn't I tell you? So again, he affirms his loyalty and says, If this was the case, I will tell you. David responds by says, Who will tell me or... Uh, who will tell me, or what if your father answers you roughly? In other words, what if you don't do it? Who then will tell me? 
And so then Jonathan breaks the action, says, let's go outside and let's look at the situation. And that's really what's going on in verse 11. Let's go outside, let's look at this field, because that field is where the action is going to take place. So this is sort of like, let's go outside, let's go to where this is going to take place, and uh, we'll construct a scenario, but we're going to do a little recon first. So Jonathan then says to David, this is where in verse 12 we begin this lengthy statement from Jonathan. It goes all the way down uh, to verse 23, from 12 to 23. So we have uh, a long section here. And this is what Jonathan says. Uh, The Lord God of Israel is witness. So he's setting this up in a covenant format that we're going to make God the witness to this agreement between us. He said, when I've sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, that would be tonight or, or, or maybe the next day or the third day, uh, indeed there is good toward David and I, do not send, <clears throat> and I do not send to you and tell you. So what he's saying there is if his father is, everything's good, then he'll tell him. Then he goes on to say, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil... Then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety, and the Lord will be with you as he has been with my father. So what he's saying here is, here's the scenario. Either I'm going to find out that Saul doesn't have anything bad in mind for you, in which case I'll let you know and everything will be good. But if he does, then I will also let you know so you can leave and we won't exacerbate the problem or try to uh, get in a fight with Saul. And then Jonathan says, And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord. There's Chesed again. Faithful, loyal love. He's reminding David that this is a mutual covenant between the two of them. You shall not only show me the kindness, the faithful, loyal love of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but... You shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. Now, this is important because when we get into uh, 2 Samuel, Jonathan and Saul are both going to be dead. Jonathan and Saul die on Mount Gilboa. That's the final battle, the final event of, of the last chapter of 1 Samuel. But he has a son, Mephibosheth. And so we're going to see David fulfills this covenant even though Jonathan is dead. Nobody else would know about the covenant. But David's integrity shows and he fulfills his loyalty to the covenant to Mephibosheth. And that's described in Second Samuel chapter 9. And we'll get there. So this is the background. This is the covenant that he makes uh, with, with um, Jonathan. Or that Jonathan made with David. You shall not cut off your kindness, your chesed, from my house forever. Not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Even when it comes down to where everything else is dealt with, you're still going to be loyal to my descendants. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. So this isn't just binding David to this covenant, but it's binding David's descendants. The dynasty of David, all of his descendants will be bound with this covenant to protect the descendants of Jonathan. They will not be part of a vendetta. So Jonathan then um, uh, causes David to vow because he loved, loved him, for he loved him as his own soul. 
And that reiterates. So we have this strong covenantal bind, this strong connection uh, between them. Then Jonathan says to David, well, tomorrow's a new moon, which would be that night, and you'll be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed. Now, that's an odd phrase. On the day of the deed and remain by the stone Etzel. Now, uh, when he says the day of the deed, uh, this would be the first working day. It really should be read the day of work. Okay, because when you have a feast day in Israel, it's like Shabbat. You don't work. So this is the first day after the feast day when people would go back to work. He said on the day after the feast, um, you will come and we'll meet at this place, Etzel. Now, we don't know where that was. It was a local name, but it would have been known at the time. And David knew what it was. And then Jonathan said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, have a, um, I'm going to have a young servant with me, and I'm going to go out for target practice, and I'm going to take my bow and arrow, and I will shoot at a target. Now, if, when the young man is going out to retrieve the arrows, if he hasn't gotten to them yet, and you hear me say, um, the arrows are on the other side, then you'll know to flee. But if I say the arrows on this side... Uh, come back to them, then you will know that everything is okay. That's what he says. So in verse 21, he says, If I say to the lad, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Come then and get them. Then there's safety for you. In other words, if he goes out, he's already pa- I'll let him pass the arrows, and I'll say, No, 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 come back. Then you'll know you're safe. But if I say the arrows are further out, further out, go get them, then you will know that, the, that uh, Saul has... A plan to kill you, and the Lord wants you to go away. Verse 23, And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord will be between you and me forever. So again, he's reiterating that God is the witness of this, of this command. So when we come down here to verse, uh, verse 24, we get into this next section where we are describing... Uh, what actually happens, what actually transpires. And so David hides in the field, and when the new moon had come, uh, the king sat down to feast. Now this is what, excuse me, this is what happens uh, at the banquet itself, description there. This is going to be now, and previously what we've seen is Jonathan and David in dialogue. Now we're going to see Jonathan and Saul in dialogue. And this is one of the more interesting euphemisms that we see in Scripture when we get uh, down here to about verse, I think it's around verse 30. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat as at other times, on a seat by the wall. You always sit with your back to the wall. That way no one can sneak up on you. While Bill Hickok made that mistake and somebody came in and shot, shot him in the back of the head uh, from, from the window. So we, you always sit with the, your, your back to the wall. And Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side. So Jonathan is standing up in attendance upon his father. Abner, who's his uncle and is the head of the armies, sits next to Saul. But David, who as an honored warrior would have probably sat on the other side of Saul, has his place empty. It's noticeably uh, vacant. And then Saul speaks in verse 26. 
are we first of all we see his thoughts and then we hear him speak. In verse 26, he's thinking, he observes that David's not there, and he thinks to himself, well, maybe something has happened to him. Maybe something happened, and he's ritually unclean, so he can't celebrate. Um, And he waits until the next day. Then in verse 27, we're told the next day, which is the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. So the next night, the second night of the feast, uh, David's place is empty. And now Saul asked Jonathan, well, where is the son of Jesse? Where's David? He hasn't been here either yesterday or today. So Jonathan answers and says, well, and he follows the plan. David sought permission to go to Bethlehem. Uh, because of a family feast. And so we, <coughs> Jonathan gave him permission. Response of, on the part of Saul is his anger. And so he immediately reacts because he's really seeking the worst for David and he's hostile to David. And so he, his anger is aroused and because Jonathan is the messenger, he, like many people, wants to shoot the messenger rather than the real enemy. So he takes it out on Jonathan. Now remember, Saul is out of fellowship. Saul is carnal. He's in rebellion against the Lord. He is controlled by anger. And he's not going to say, oh, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now, we have an idiom in English that fits this pretty good, and that's probably exactly what Saul said, because he's, this isn't coming out of a schoolboy. Well, maybe it would come out of a schoolboy. This isn't coming out of a young child's mouth. This is coming out of a uh, murderous reprobate's mouth, and that's not exactly what he is saying. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? And now he really lights into, into Jonathan. He says, I know that you've betrayed me. I know that you've chosen uh, to be more loyal to David than to me. Now, let me tell you what the problem is. As long as this guy's alive, he is going to take what is rightfully yours. He's going to steal your inheritance. He's going to take everything that should go to you. He's the one who's going to seize the kingdom, and you will be left uh, with nothing. So now, you go get him, for he shall surely die. And literally in the Hebrew, it's he's a son of death, which means he'll be characterized by death. I've gone over these idioms in the past with, with you that in Hebrew, if you're describing somebody's character, you say that they are the son of something. So if they're a fool, they're described in the Hebrew as a son of a fool. Usually, the English just calls them, um, just calls them a, a, a fool. Uh, every now and then you'll have a translation like the, the biblical SOB, which we just referred to a minute ago in English. The biblical SOB is a son of Belial. And that meant you were a son of destruction. And we've had that idiom a couple of times in Samuel. Uh, so that is, that's one idiom. But if you're going to call somebody God, you would call them the son of God because you're attributing full deity to them. If you're talking about Jesus as a son of man, you're attributing full humanity to him. So this son of doesn't necessarily mean that your father was something. It means that you share in those characteristics. It's a way of describing uh, somebody's character. So after this, Jonathan realizes that he just didn't understand his father at all. He's been naive and that Saul really does want to kill David. And he says, why should he be killed? What has he done? There's, is, is there any guilt on his part? And this anger Saul so much that he throws a spear at his own son, 
just as he had tried to do with David. He just hauls back and tries to pin him to the wall. And so Jonathan realizes that that Saul wants to kill David. So now uh, Jonathan gets up and he's angry. And he ate no food. He fasts until the time comes because he was grieved for David. So David really understood the situation back in verse, I think it was back in verse 2 or 3 when he said that it told Jonathan that if Saul told you what was going on, you would be grieved. And he is. He is grieved. He is sorrowful for David because he's going to lose his friend. He's either going to get killed or he's going to have to leave somewhere. And so he realizes that, that how wrong his father is. So there's a lot of emotion that's going on here in Jonathan, but he doesn't operate on his emotion. He operates on truth, and he's concerned about righteousness, so he's going to protect David. And we're told in verse 35 that in the morning, Jonathan goes out in the field to take some target practice, and he takes a young boy with him, and he says to this boy, uh, go find the arrows which I shoot, and as the land... As this boy runs out there, he shoots arrows that will go way beyond him so that he can uh, say, well, run further. The arrows are beyond you, and that's the code to David uh, to leave. And so as he, as the boy is searching for the arrows, Jonathan is able to yell to the boy, but he's really yelling to David. In verse 38, he says, make haste, hurry. Do not delay. Now, he's talking, really, he's talking to David, but he can get away with it because it sounds like he's telling the boy what to do. So the boy gathers up the arrows, comes back, but the lad did not know anything. He wasn't aware that David was out there. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. So Dave, Jonathan de- then gave his weapons, all of his equipment, the arrows, the quiver, the, the bow, to the, to the lad and said, take those back to the city. And as soon as the boy is gone, David arises, and you see this extremely heartfelt scenario where um, David uh, runs to to, uh, Jonathan, and they hug each other, they kiss one another on the cheek, they weep together, and then Jonathan tells him to go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord. May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So another example of this is we see that covenant loyalty, that that love and loyalty for friends has to be grounded upon personal integrity. And even when there are problems, it is only when we have that personal integrity that we can work our way through those particular problems. So let me conclude with... About four points dealing with people testing. First of all, people testing takes place when we are faced with challenges in personal relationships. And they can be all kinds of different challenges. There are situations that challenge our loyalty. We would rather do something else. We would rather go somewhere else or be with somewhere. Any number of things. Just as David and Jonathan had a relationship where there was pressure on there that challenged their loyalty. And then we have situations that challenge our impersonal love. Now, impersonal love... 
it means that that we don't really know the person there's not a personal relationship other terms that I use to describe that is unconditional love in other words we're going to be loyal to the other person based on a principle based on truth based on righteousness and in the case of loving one another we love one another not because the other person is attractive or lovely but because of the character of God and we are to emulate the character of, of God. So we have two forms that this takes, uh, dealing with people who oppose us and also people who challenge our loyalty. Are we really going to be loyal uh, to a friend? A second observation on people testing is that all people testing is resolved through the use of one or more of these spiritual skills. Now, the first uh, three... I've got them listed. I didn't hit a paragraph there. Uh, first three are walking by the Spirit, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. Those are foundational to the more advanced spiritual skills that we've studied. If we're not walking according to the Spirit, then the sin nature is going to rule, and that's going to lead to divisiveness, anger, resentment, bitterness, hatred, all kinds of mental attitude sins, rather than love. If we're walking by the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.16, the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 is love. And so when we're walking by the Spirit, only when we're walking by the Spirit, can we genuinely, enthusiastically love someone who is not being uh, real loving at the time. And so it's not what our flesh would want to do. So we walk by the Spirit so we can have the fruit of the Spirit. And that means grace orientation. Grace orientation, we realize that God loved us even when we were at enmity with him. When we were as obnoxious to his righteousness as we could possibly be, God said, you know what? I'm going to beat you down. No, he said, I'm going to send my son to die on the cross for you. So that is the example that we have in terms of grace orientation. We're not going to treat people in terms of what they deserve, but we're going to rise above it and treat them in kindness and gentleness and uh, enthusiastic care. Doctrinal orientation means that we've learned this from the Word of God and we can think through various different perspectives uh, from the Scripture as to how we are to love those who may not be real lovable at the time. Then the fourth and fifth one, the fourth is our personal love for God. That's the foundation for all integrity, is we're doing it because we love God, not because that dirty, rotten person is worthy of love. But we're doing it because God says that's what we're supposed to do. So that's our motivation. That's what provides integrity for this scenario. And then we're able to have love for one another. So when we face people testing, as David did, all people testing falls under one of three categories. Broadly, it would be two categories, deserved suffering or undeserved suffering. Uh, but I'm going to break it down into three categories. The first category is deserved suffering. Deserved something, d suffering means that we have done something that would bring about the hostility from somebody else. Uh, this is what David was concerned about. Have I done something? And he continuously affirmed, no, there's no sin, there's no iniquity on my part. So it wasn't deserved suffering. He did not deserve the hostility of Saul. Then there's undeserved suffering. 
Undeserved suffering is when we haven't done anything personally to deserve it, and it can be the direct result of the sinfulness of others. And so this, uh, we're, we're married to somebody, we're living in a country where everybody is uh, hostile to God, um, there's, uh, we're associated in a business where decisions outside of our control are made, and consequently we uh, reap the hostility from others. Uh, that would be undeserved suffering from um, in that situation. And the third category of undeserved suffering is it's undeserved, um, we're not associated with anybody. It's not the result of any bad decision we've made. But God allows it in order to teach us to trust in Him and to grow spiritually and to give us the opportunities to exhibit the character of Christ in our life. So it's undeserved suffering, but it's designed for our personal spiritual growth. Now, the fourth area is that when we are under attack or rejection or perceived rejection or overt hostility, then we follow these basic steps. First of all, we turn it over to the Lord. We'll see this in 1 Peter 5. 5, 7 says, Casting all your care upon Him because He cares for you. That's a simple verse. If you've got children or grandchildren, that would be the third verse I would have them memorize. First verse would be John 3.16. The second verse would be 1 John 1.9. And then this would be the third verse. It's not hard. It's hard to practice, but it's not hard to learn. But it is the key for all faith rest drill is to trust God, to turn the problems over to Him, not think about it, not focus on it, not worry about it. We let God take control. We turn it over to the Lord. Second, we think in terms of divine justice as seen in David's uh, psalm in Psalm 59. The Lord is the one who's omnipotent. The one, the Lord is the one who's just. Let the Lord handle the situation. So we go to this psalm and we think through the rationale that's in that psalm as we studied the last uh, three weeks. Uh, third, we then go the extra mile in being kind, thoughtful, and gracious to the one who's, who is our enemy. We are to love our enemies, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the example, the classic example, is the Good Samaritan in Luke 10:33, where you have uh, the person who's been robbed and beaten up and left on the side of the road, and this Samaritan who's not well liked by Jews sees this Jew by the side of the road, and he could just react and say, "Well, those Jews treat me." Uh, like horse manure, so I'm going to uh, avoid him at all costs. He gets what he deserves. But what he does is he goes to him, he binds up his wounds, he cleans up his clothes, he takes him to a hotel, he pays the bill, and he goes the extra mile to take care of everything to make sure that he is taken care of. That is, uh, personal love isn't just the absence of mental attitude sins. It is the presence of doing what is right and best for the other person and enjoying it because you're pleasing the Lord. Fourth, we do not dwell on personal affronts. David isn't going to... That was the thing that, that, saw, uh, that Jonathan says is, is don't think about this. 
Uh, we don't dwell on personal fronts, injuries, insults, or assaults. Now, that doesn't mean that we put ourselves intentionally in harm's way. That's what David does. David is not going to put himself in a where he could be killed. And so he makes uh, the, takes the appropriate action. But we are not to mentally succumb to the situation and dwell on the injuries or insults or assaults. When we dwell on those things, then we will let them influence our decision-making and behavior, and we will then put our sin nature in control and other people in control. We need to let the Holy Spirit be in control and walk by the Spirit. So we need to make sure that the one who's influencing us is the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and not our own sin nature, and our own fears and anxieties. Now, next time, we'll come back to a brutal chapter, terrible situation that occurs in First Samuel chapter 21 with the priests at Nob. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things. Be reminded of the principles related to uh, impersonal love, unconditional love, uh, people testing. Every one of us has to deal with people who in some way or another insults us, hurts us, uh, maybe is antagonistic or hateful to us or seeks to destroy us in some way. But we have to respond uh, the biblical way. The biblical truth is the right way, and we don't let other people's negative actions and sinful actions dictate our uh, mental attitude. Uh, we don't put ourselves under their control or enslave ourselves to their sin nature, but we live above it because we're walking with you. Father, we pray you would challenge us with what we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen.